0: Good morning, everyone. I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Uh, good, good to be with you. Looking forward to getting to know you all better. I've already messed up. Uh, I called Suzette Wanda. Wanda, i got to call you Suzette later to kind of balance this thing out, but I'm going to do that. Uh, Sorry if I call you by the wrong names. Hopefully by the end of the week I'll have them all down so that when I leave you all forget about them again, right? (laughs) Because that's how it works usually in gospel meetings, but I'm very thankful to be here. I understand y'all could have asked a lot of people to come and speak to you this week, and um, it's certainly a privilege and honor, and it's encouraging to me, uh, and I hope I can be an encouragement to you as well as we worship our God in heaven. The Sermon on the Mount was arguably probably the greatest sermon that was ever preached. I don't think there's a sermon that uh, Stephen or myself could ever preach that would rival this great sermon. It wasn't something that you heard every day. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount was something that was very unique. It wasn't unique because the things that Jesus taught were not taught in the Old Testament. The Old Testament talked about pretty much everything that the Sermon on the Mount gets into, but the everything that uh, Jesus was saying in the Sermon on the Mount would have run against the grain of popular convention of that day uh, because of the Pharisees and the elitists of that time and the way that they were teaching the old law and they just got right down to the letter without ever considering the spirit behind many of the things that were taught there. Uh, So Jesus knew this, but he preached it anyway, and in doing so he struck at the very heart of what true citizenship in the kingdom is really about. Uh, The Beatitudes set the tone for the Sermon on the Mount, do they not? Uh, We are a blessed people. Uh, When we experience a deep sense of spiritual poverty, when we mourn over our sin, when we portray meekness in spite of the rights and liberties that we enjoy as citizens in the United States of America, we're a people who hunger and thirst for a right relationship with God. We're merciful towards others because of the abundance of mercy that God has given us. Uh, We're also a people who desire pureness of heart and the peace and the harmony that comes with being part of a spiritual family. And when you think about all of those qualities that we just mentioned, those beatitudes that Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 5, you would think that people like this would be some of the most blessed people, uh, not only in the eyes of God, which they certainly are, but some of the most honored people in this world. I mean, wouldn't you want to get to know people like that, that Jesus is talking about here? Some of those honored people, some of those dignified people, everybody should want to be around people just like this. Yet... Jesus concludes the Beatitudes by affirming that rather than these people being honored, this kind of person will actually revoke within others all manner of reviling and slander and persecution. Why? Because becoming this blessed people is a choice and so many choose to pinch their tits in darkness and so they resent those who choose to strive to live in the light because disciples of Christ Are a perpetual reminder of their sin. And if this suffering and difficulty was all that we had to look forward to in this life, assuming no promise at the end of our journey, it would certainly be a valid question to ask if trying to attain to these characteristics were even truly worth it. But obviously there is indeed a reward waiting for us. And Jesus also continues this sermon of sermons by explaining also how strong and attractive our influence can actually be when children of the kingdom take on these attitudes. How powerful of a force that we can be when those who do dwell in darkness realize it and with honest hearts they're yearning to come out. And so this morning what I want to do is I want to consider just one statement that Jesus makes in the Sermon on the Mount that alludes to this very fact. It's the the statement that we find in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 13 when he says that you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Now, one of the reasons that Jesus' teaching was so attractive to the masses was because he used illustrations just like this one where every single person in the audience of that particular time and culture could have understood. It's a little bit harder for us because we're 2,000 years removed from that eastern culture and the agrarian society that they lived in. But these people during this day were well acquainted with salt and its characteristics. And so Jesus saying to them, you are the salt of the earth, that would have immediately gotten this people thinking about what characteristics of salt Jesus might actually be comparing them to. So let's talk about that this morning. Um, You know, at that time, salt was actually available in abundance. Uh, As you see in that picture there, that's a picture of the Dead Sea. You see all that salt that's washed up at the Dead Sea right there? There's an abundance of it. But when they gathered it from shore as it appeared right there, it would have been in a very impure and mostly useless state. And so what they had to do with all this salt right here is they had to gather it and they had to put it through all kinds of various processes in order to remove the impurities and to actually make it useful. And brethren, I don't know of any greater description than us, than that right there, right? When God gathers us together at our Dead Sea, I mean, we're pretty useless folks, right? I mean, we get ourselves in trouble with sin and all matters of self-indulgence. We can't do God any good while we're in that state. But that's the state that He gathered us together in, isn't it? Ephesians 2 verse 1, He says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. That's who we were when God gathered us into His kingdom. And when He gathers us into His kingdom and we come to Him, what do we do? We do it as we sing so often, just as I am. With all of our impurities, with all of our sin, and then what does He do to us? Ephesians 2 verse 5, He made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our... And it's gone. Stephen, you were right. Some of my text is running off here. (laughs) Open your Bibles to Ephesians 2 if you want to see the rest. (laughs) Uh, We'll try to take care of that as the week goes on. And so what happens is, God takes us in our deadness and He makes us alive. And then when He makes us alive, He disciplines us and He prunes us, uh, taking what was once without once without value, and He makes us invaluable and He makes us pure and full of worth all because of His wonderful grace that Ephesians 2 and verse 5 goes on to tell us. See, despite how impure salt was as it lays on the shore of the Dead Sea, when it was purified... It was actually very expensive monetarily during that time. Much more expensive than what we find in our grocery stores today. In fact, uh, history tells us that Roman soldiers were actually paid with salt for their labor, which is where we get our word salary. Salary comes from the same root word as salt. The expression, he is not worth his salt, actually originates from the ancient Greek practice where salt was traded for slaves. See, brethren... No matter how sinful we have been in our past, no matter what we've done, if we have obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ, we belong to God. And brethren, that means that we have value. God wants you. God can use you. God told the children of Zion in Zechariah 2 and verse 8 uh, that after glory he has sent me against the nations which plunder you for he who touches you, and you can't see it here because the text is run off again, but it says he touches the apple of his eye. That means we're invaluable to God. So it is true that no matter how impure of a life you may live, that you can come to God just as you are. We also can't stay that way, can we? No, because we are the salt of the earth. And what that means is God has a purpose for us. He has a purpose for his new creation. And that purpose is that we will be a powerful influence in this world. Okay, so there were two primary purposes after this fact, I think, that probably, I imagine anyway, that Jesus would have been alluding to his disciples regarding in the first century uh, as far as comparing them to salt. Two primary purposes of salt. Number one, salt was used to prevent decay. And it was also used as an antiseptic to preserve as well as to prevent infection in disease. So let's talk about what it means that salt is a preservative. Now, before electricity was invented, people didn't have the same luxuries that we do of storing their fish. You know, we got a fisherman over here. They they couldn't store their fish in freezers and refrigerators, dude. If you had been fishing during the first century, you know what you would have done in order to keep your fish fresh? You would have packed it in salt. You would have packed it in salt. See, remember the Flintstones cartoon, the, the, the uh, re- uh, refrigerator that was operated by the generator with the little dinosaur pumping the exercise bike in the back room? That's not what happened. I don't think evolutionists teach that today, but that's not how it worked. That's not the reality. People prevented their meat and their fish and their other perishable goods by doing that right there. See that fishnet up upper right corner? Packed it in salt. Because salt is a natural preservative. And I think that that's probably one of the things that Jesus is telling his disciples then that they were. And he's also telling us now that we are. We are the salt of the earth because we are a preservative to this earth, brethren. We're a saving force in this world in the same sense that salt is a preserving and saving force to perishable meat. How? By way of influence which is our natural function as Christians, uh, in order to prevent the moral decay of sin that is infecting our world. Christians deter sin's power to destroy lives, which in uh, in turn creates opportunities for the gospel to be proclaimed and to be received. 1 Peter 2 and verse 12 says keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers they may because of your good deeds as they observe them glorify God in the day of visitation. The sad fact is that we live in a world that is lost in sin just like we were when God gathered us from our dead sea and purified us by water and the Spirit. But now we are disciples and we've been given the opportunity to preach and carry the gospel as a saving force to this world. Brethren, that's our job. God has no hands but our hands as we sing. And unless we do this, The world will be doomed because a world without disciples carrying the message of the gospel is a world condemned for lack of the truth of how things really are. Romans 10 and verse 14 describes this process. Paul says, How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Sometimes I try to get my wife to rub my feet and she says, Oh, your feet are nasty. And I say, That's ridiculous. Jennifer, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. But that's the truth those, as far as what, how Paul mentions it there, right? That's how beautiful it is when you have somebody, whether it's me or anybody else carrying the gospel, God says, you're beautiful even down to your feet. And and I think that's one of the problems with a, a verse like this is naturally when we think about somebody who's being a preacher, we think about a guy like me, right? We think about what I'm doing here right now. A formal presentation by someone with the responsibility to stand up and talk about religious things. Brethren, preaching is so much more than that. To preach means to advocate. It means to to plead in favor of or to support or to urge by means of some argument. When Jesus told his apostles in Mark 16 verse 15 to go into all the world and to preach the gospel to every creature, he's not telling them to make sure that they stand up on a regular basis and give a formal presentation about spiritual things. Now certainly that would be included, which is why we do it. But the way the Bible uses the word preach is not just limited to that. It's actually pretty similar to how your kid might use it. You know, when you're trying to tell your kid to stop doing something, and you got to tell him over and over, "We'll stop doing this, stop doing this." And, and then what does he say to you when he gets tired of you saying it? He says, "I wish you'd stop preaching to me." Right? How did he use that word? He actually used that word a lot better than we do sometimes, (laughs) because that's actually what he means. Because what's the difference between preaching and teaching? Well, it's a little bit hard to determine, but but on, on, on the simplest level, preaching is to teach with passion. We're dispensing information, but we're doing more than that. We're dispensing information because of the urgency and the importance of that information. So if your child walked out in the middle of the road and, and you got traffic coming this way and that, you're not going to say to your child, uh, little Billy, come on back here. You're about to get hit by a car. You're not going to say it like that, are you? You're going to be like, what are you doing, Billy? Get back here. And you're going to grab his arm and you're not going to worry about hurting his arm because you don't want him to get his whole body hurt. And you're going to be like, don't ever do that again. That's the no- you're going to get hit by a car. And you would- well, you'd be preaching to him, right? You'd be teaching him with passion because of the importance of trying to get into his head. You don't ever do that. That's what Jesus is telling us. Not quite with that much enthusiasm, by the way, but but that's what he's telling us. You are the salt of the earth. You are the preserving power by which, which lost men and women can hear the good news that I have delivered them. And brethren, if we don't do this, men and women of this world are going to be condemned. Now, in order for us to fulfill this responsibility as a preserving power, as a preservative, what do we have to do? What does salt have to do in order to really use its preserving power. It can only preserve the perishable by getting in close contact with the object that is trying to preserve. You can't just place a bucket of salt in the same room with a bunch of meat and hoping to preserve it, can you? That's not how it's going to work. It has to make close contact. And you know what that means? That means that we can't isolate ourselves from other people in our community, does it? We have a God-given responsibility to teach them, not just by word, but by the influence that should be our good example you know, the ancient monks, they didn't understand this. Uh, When the ancient monks observed the wickedness in their communities, they thought the best thing that they could do for themselves and for the kingdom was to seclude themselves from the world by living in caves and and such. And then as time went on, they they relished in the seclusion and it turned into religious pride. And, And I understand that there's another end of this where we have to guard ourselves from the world and limit our association to one extent. But there is a balance that we have to strive for because we can't teach a lost world and at the same time avoid anyone and everyone who happens to offend our delicate sensibilities. We can't reach a lost world by limiting our discipleship even to Sunday and Wednesday night attendance or studying the Bible on our own or praying on our own. No, salt makes close contact with that which is perishing because that's what salt does. People in this world, folks, they are not going to stand a chance come judgment day without the preserving power that Christians can bring them by being the salt that God created us to be. Because the word salary, that's not the only word from which we get the root word for salt. It's also where we derive our word salvation. Salt. Salt is a preserving power. It's also an antiseptic though, isn't it? Salt is an antiseptic. You can take salt and and you can rub it on a a blister or an open wound. And and what that salt will do is it'll weaken that bacteria. It'll prevent it from causing infection. But it sure doesn't feel good, does it? It doesn't feel good at all. It, 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 It helps. It heals. But it irritates as well, doesn't it? Salt doesn't irritate everything, though. If I were to take some salt and pour it on my hand right now, I wouldn't feel any pain whatsoever because I don't have a wound on my hand. But if I had an open wound on my hand and I take a tub of salt and I pour it on top of that wound, it's going to irritate. It's going to sting. It's going to hurt. But the salt didn't cause the wound, did it? Think about that. The salt didn't cause the wound. No, all, what did the salt do? All the salt did was it emphasized the fact That a wound is there, and it's trying to help heal the wound. Is there any more fitting metaphor for what gospel preaching is really all about? The very presence of believers in this dying world stings the consciences of the ungodly and their worldly sensibilities. And so, in trying to love someone, when you try to warn them, When you try to advise, when you try to love them, you know, a lot of people, as Jesus said at the end of the Beatitudes, they're going to resent you. They're going to hate you. They're going to scoff at you. The truth of God's word, when rubbed into this diseased and decaying world, will sting. And they won't blame the wound. No, many times their anger is misdirected, right? They'll blame the salt. Isn't that why a lot of us don't bother to do it? Isn't that why gospel preaching can be so hard? And it's why so many people also prefer a non-irritating brand of the gospel. Because the truth, by its very nature, when it's given to a sin-sick world, brethren, the truth is going to hurt. Mark 9 and verse 49, though, says that everyone will be salted with fire. No one's exempt from this. If we think that we're going to go to heaven without anybody ever correcting our behavior at all in our entire life, folks, we are living in a dream world. When someone has allowed sin to completely encapsulate him and a disciple comes along and tries to draw him out of that darkness, it often takes that person lost in sin to become just a little bit irritated before they can begin to actually properly heal. I obeyed the gospel uh, in 2001. And when I was studying with uh, the preacher who ended up baptizing me, uh, he, uh, his name was Todd Reynolds. I don't know if anybody uh, know him. He used to preach up in uh, Bessemer, Alabama. Um, he and I had a lot of debates about uh, Bible authority. Uh, I would bring all these uh, books to our Thursday night Bible studies that were written by all these men with PhDs and divinity and all this kind of stuff. And Todd, you know, just as patient as he could be, would just bring his Bible. And I remember kind of, you, know, uh, you know, rubbing him a little bit, you know, saying, oh, oh Todd, well, these guys got PhDs. Where's your PhD in divinity? You're <laughs> trying to knock him a little bit because the way he would contend with me, I, I really couldn't answer him because he just kept going to the Bible over and over and over and over again. And I remember on this, this particular Thursday, we had a, a pretty heated uh, debate over authority uh, on that Thursday night study. And then like three days later, the following Sunday, I had visited the church and I was sitting there in the back row and Todd got up there to preach his lesson. And he was preaching on authority and you know who he was preaching at during that lesson? This guy right here. He was preaching right at me, saying the same things that we had just talked about Thursday night, but he was saying that with all that renewed vigor, because you know when we're standing behind this pulpit, we're bulletproof. You can't shoot us. You know, Nothing can hurt us, right? <laughs> that's how it feels sometimes until you get back there in the foyer and a brother gets on you. you know? But, but that's, that's how it was. I mean, he, he was up there, and it was like nothing could hurt him. And, of course, I'm sitting back there like I couldn't get any more in the back row because I'm just feeling the pain. I'm feeling the hurt. And I'm sitting there like this, I'm like, I can't believe he's preaching to me. He's preaching to me. You know, he could have preached to anybody here, but he's preaching to me. And and I was getting angry and I was getting mad because he was salt rubbing on my open wound. I had an open wound, brethren, and it was called pride. That's what it was called. And I'll tell you, I I didn't know it at that time, but I remember at the end of that sermon, I said, I'm never coming back to this church again. And I'm going to wound him with my anger on the way out. I'm not even going to talk to him. And I left there and I I remember getting back to my apartment and I remember thinking as I calmed down a little bit, you know, he wasn't the problem. I'm the problem. Everything he said, I I could not denounce one bit from Scripture. Everything he said was right. And what he was trying to do, that dude was trying to love me by preaching to me. He had a full-time job. He wasn't a full-time preacher. He had a full-time job and a family. This wasn't some kind of hobby for him. My problem Was it not only could I not contend with what he says scripturally because it was the truth, my problem was that my anger was misdirected because he was being salt towards me, brethren, rubbing on 24 years' worth of open wounds that I had not been able to see on my own. Because after all, how will they believe if they don't hear, and how will they hear without a preacher? What he did, as angry as I was towards him, is he did exactly what he was supposed to do. And my problem was i was too prideful to realize that the direction of my life was leading me straight to hell i didn't need to fix him i needed to fix me and there's a reason why he's one of my best friends today because folks fateful are the wounds of a friend fateful are the wounds of a friend he didn't cause the wound that was in me did he he did not cause a wound no like salt he helped me to see that a wound was there, and he was trying to help me heal it. You ever, uh, you ever had somebody that kind of gets on your nerves a little bit, and maybe it's not for any like sinful thing that they've done, but you just there's something about somebody's personality that kind of rubs on you a little bit, and you just think, man, I can I just can't stand this guy. He just, he grates on my nerves. Well, did you make the mistake of one time praying to God for patience? <laughs> maybe, maybe that's the reason why that person's in your life. Maybe this person is unknowingly being sought on an open wound. What I'm suggesting is that people out there, much of the time, they're not the ones with the problem. Most of the time, the problem is internal. If I'm hurting, if I'm beat up, if I'm angry over something, that's my issue. Brethren, if someone says something scriptural, to me or if they make an application from scripture towards me that is true and that irritates me and gets on my nerves perhaps what I need to do is look deep inside and ask myself whether or not my anger and my irritation might be just a little misdirected if God's word irritates you and burns you I guarantee you it's not the word of God that's the problem the word is just showing us We've got a wound that needs healing, and we all do. And that's the design of Scripture, is it not? Hebrews 4 and verse 12, he says, The Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow. And here's, here's the part. Able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Christians, by what they teach and the way they live, are going to irritate other people. I know this is true because they wouldn't have been persecuted in the first century if they were not an irritating factor in society. But again, Christians are not the true cause of the irritation. They're just like salt. They simply emphasize that a wound is already there. Christians, through preaching and being living epistles, emphasize the fact that a change must be made. And that's why Jesus didn't say you are the sugar of the world. That's why he didn't say you are the honey of the world. So just go out and be sweet. Of course we're to be gracious and we're to be compassionate and we're absolutely to remember where we once were before someone became and was salt to us. But if our teaching consists of too much sugar and too much honey and not enough salt, we're likely just being a little band-aid solution rather than healing the sickness that is within um, so salt is a preserving power, it's an irritant, but, oh, we know this right, salt makes you thirsty, right? We may think that people out there don't want what the Lord has to offer, but even just a little bit of salt can make people thirsty, can it? You ever been to a restaurant and you're sitting there and the, the waiter or waitress is taking kind of a long time, but you got some of those saltine crackers sitting there, maybe some peanuts sitting there, and you start kind of throwing those down. And they're a little salty, and now you're getting a little bit thirsty because salt makes you thirsty. And, and it's not like somebody just like opened your mouth and poured a whole tub of salt in your throat. It just takes a little bit, does it? Just a little bit of salt, just a pinch, just a few grains here and there, and we're famished and need water can't think about anything else it's at the forefront of your thoughts you begin to notice everything that has a connotation of water cups rain oh there's a pitcher of water now i'm even thirstier <laughs> you know it's like a man wandering in a desert dehydrated you're so fixated on water you, you even start to imagine in everything that you see and the greater the thirst the more earnest the search And you don't want other liquids. Uh, I'm a a tennis player, and when I've been playing tennis for two hours, I don't think after I've been playing tennis for two hours, boy, I'd love to be uh, rehydrated with a good old fat glass of Coca-Cola. And I love Coke, don't get me wrong. No, what I want, what my body needs, is I want that simple, tasteless H2O. That's all I want, because I want the one thing that can quench my thirst. What I'm suggesting here, brethren, is that we live in a world that whether they want to admit it or not, they're thirsting for direction, and they hardly know it, uh, but they're thirsting for something more, something lasting, something eternal, and, and you know this is true because they're looking for it in all the wrong places, are they not? I mean, they're over indulging in everything they can from entertainment to sports to sexuality and money, anything and everything, but what will truly nurture the soul. But then comes a Christian with just that little bit of salt, just that pinch of showing the grace and the love of Jesus Christ. And that feeds hope to an undernourished world. That salts their palate. Suddenly, they're acutely aware of just how thirsty they are and how there is something of eternal significance that is missing in their life that is uniquely satisfying. Christians, by their very lives, bring evidence of joy, satisfaction, contentment that nothing here of material sus- substance can bring. I mean, the happiness that, that is manifested, the joy that's manifested in our lives as a result of the forgiveness of sins that we've received, the, the sense of belonging that we feel when, when we come in fellowship together like we're doing here this morning, uh, the, 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 as a result of being a part of, of a family, as a result of the love and the goodwill that naturally exists between brethren, the peace of mind, as we see the world worrying about this and that, who's in office, who's not in office and all that, and we're just going about just as joyful as we can because we know where our inheritance is. I'm telling you, people with good and honest hearts, they see this, and it causes them to look up from their hectic and empty lives and say, you know, that's what I want. Because only a Christian could have ever have the right perspective on trouble, hardship, and difficulty as well as prosperity. It makes people thirsty for the fountain of life that never runs dry. Peter alluded to this in 1 Peter 3 and verse 1 through 4 as it pertains to husbands and wives, particularly to wives. Peter said in 1 Peter 3 and verse 1, that in the same way you wives be submissive to your own husbands so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. I heard a story one time about a um, about a, a lady that was a, a Christian uh, and she was married to a man who was not, uh, but despite the fact that he was not, uh, every service, every Wednesday, Sunday, when the church met, this lady went to church uh, and left her husband home. Always invited him, but he never would want to go. But as time went on, he started to kind of resent her a little bit. Uh, the fact that she put so much precedence on that, and maybe he got a little bit jealous, and so he started, you know, being a little bit of a, a, a goofball about it. And uh, I think, like, uh, I think I heard like fifteen or twenty minutes before she be about ready to take the car to the church, he would go and take the car, their only car somewhere, just so she wouldn't be able to go. That's how much of a jerk he started acting towards her. And uh, so she just started walking. She was a little bit late, you know, but she, she just started walking to church. Snowed, it rained, she just walked to church. Eventually that wore him down to the point where he finally started to go with her. And he went with her every Sunday, every Wednesday, eventually obeyed the gospel, and over time eventually became a gospel preacher. She never lashed out at him, never, never, you know, cried at him, at least from what I understand, always, you know, would do it in in private, always uh, submitted to him, loved him, regardless of how he might have treated her. I tell you, that wore him down. It wore him down. She was a wise woman, never demanded her rights, probably would have driven him away if she had, but instead in her perseverance, in her salt, she calls this man to long for something that at one time he didn't even know he was thirsty for. And salt flavors, does it not? It enhances everything that it touches. I mean, most foods are pretty bland and pretty dry without salt. And what this tells us is that salt is missed when it's not present. That's what Job 6 and verse 6 tells us. And something tasteless be eaten without salt or is there any taste in the white of an egg? So what this suggests is that the presence of a conscientiously godly person in society will have the natural effect of arousing an appetite for God and a thirst for that righteousness that Jesus Jesus alluded to in the Beatitudes. And brethren, as the salt of the earth, we are agents of flavoring. Our purpose in this world before we get to heaven is to bring the taste of heaven to this earth wherever we go and with whomever we come in contact with. Because many people are living bland, flavorless lives which is why they're striving to find some kind of high, some kind of thrill, and they're looking forward to materialism and entertainment which simply boils down to a distraction for otherwise meaningless lives. But brethren, everything about us and the way that we live should resonate with attractiveness and with virtue as well as the holiness of the Lord. Because salt brings out the best in food and so too does Christ bring out the best in others as a, a, a result of how Christ flavors Uh, us. Um, This is something I actually did experience. Uh, The church that I obeyed the gospel at, where I was mentioning Todd, where he preached at, um, we were having a Wednesday night uh, singing, uh, We always had Wednesday night singings, the last Wednesday night of every month. And uh, it, it was going like pretty much every other singing went, you know, as ordinary as could be. We weren't expecting any surprises or anything like that. That's usually how it works. But um, about uh, midways through this particular Wednesday night singing, a uh, young man walked in uh, to the building that we had never laid on, eyes on before. Uh, wasn't dressed all that well. Looked like, you know, maybe he had been working out in the yard or something like that. He was, you know, a little dirty, filthy. Um, we didn't really know what to make of because he just walked right up and sat right on the front row. Uh, But he picked up a book, found the song and just started singing along with us. And so, you know, of course, you know, we were a little curious about this guy. Uh, But uh, at the end of the service, you know, after the invitation and the guys up there giving the closing uh, announcements, um, uh, he says, are there any men here that need to make any announcements before we close? And this guy stood up and he said, yes, I have an announcement to make. And of course, we're thinking, oh, boy, here we go. (laughs) Pulling out our Bibles, getting ready to go to work, you know, and we didn't know what to expect this guy was going to say. And it just blew our minds what he said. Uh, He said, I was sitting right out there at the stoplight uh, with my windows rolled down. And he said, I just got fired from my job. I called my wife and told her, and it's like the third job I've lost in a year, so now she's threatening to leave me. We're in debt, this and that. I mean, he was just going through all his problems. He said, but as I was sitting there thinking about what in the world am I going to do with my life, I could hear you guys singing from that red light, and it lifted me up so much, I just had to come in and join you. And he said, I just want you to know how much I appreciate you for encouraging me in an otherwise discouraging situation. And, you know, <laughs> I mean, how often does something like that happen? You, you know, we, we think what we're doing here doesn't have any impact whatsoever on people out there. And it may not be a guy sitting right now, now out there at a stoplight or something like hearing what we're doing here now. But never underestimate the power that our influence can have on people who are living discouraging situations and don't know it until they run across people like us who are singing with joy, who are praying in in a prayerless society, who are reading the Word of God when everybody else is out there listening to junk on TV and the internet that they shouldn't be listening to. Brethren, the whole design of salt is to enhance and it is to flavor. And it is amazing just what a pinch of that salt can do to an otherwise seemingly meaningless life. As David said in Psalm 119, verse 103, how sweet are your words to my taste. Yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. But what happens if salt loses its saltiness? Matthew 5.13 again says, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. And Luke says it this way, Therefore salt is good, but even as salt has become tasteless, With what will it be seasoned This useless either for the soil or for the manure pile it is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. How does salt lose its saltiness? Um, Through an influx of other substances. Uh, When those substances empower it, then salt loses its ability to perform as God designed it to. It's the exact same concept that Jesus taught in Matthew 13, verse 22 in the parable of the sower. In Matthew 13, verse 22, when he was talking about the seed that was sown among the thorns, he said, this is the man who hears the word and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. Brethren, it's the same exact concept just as weeds suck away all the nutrients of the soil and allows all those impurities in our life uh, to rob us of our abilities, to, to be the influence that God created us to be, that's what happens when we allow impurities to get into the salt that God created us to be. And when that happened in the first century, when salt lost its flavor, they were put on highways. They couldn't be put, on, put in gardens or fields because that would damage the soil. No, they were added to pathways where it would absorb moisture and make the roads harder. Literally, good for only being trampled underfoot. And brethren, that can happen when we allow things in this world to taint us. Things like bitterness, which we're going to talk about here in just a bit, unrepentant sin, when our hearts become hardened, uh, we, we lose our saltiness and we become trampled upon. And you want to know who tramples on us more than anybody else? It's the devil. He walks all over us, uses us for his agenda to bring suffering to others. He manipulates us and he makes a mess of our life because we're letting him until at last we find ourselves in torment right alongside him. My encouragement to you this morning, as I constantly try to encourage myself in regards to these things, is to be the people that God created us to be. Church is not somewhere you go. It is who we are, a powerful influence for good in an otherwise rotten world. And so let's stand for truth and righteousness, being genuinely concerned about our influence and teaching, always doing our best to make sure that we are the salt of the earth. Do you give invitations generally at this time? Or this is a Bible study, period? Okay, Uh, we'll give the invitation uh, at the end of the next lesson. Obviously, if something has inspired you, even in this lesson to obey the gospel, I don't think the church here is gonna stop you from coming forward and making your life right with God. So you can do that at any point uh, that you hear something that might inspire you to do so. Appreciate so much your attention. Uh, Looking forward to being with y'all again.